Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Could we mute the other channels real quick, Bailey? I think they're all kind of humming a little bit. (laughs) Andrew, if you could jump up there and show where those are, that'd be great. Everything but channel two. Because that's me. (laughs) Maybe we should mute that. I don't know. I'll talk real loud. There we go. The hum is gone. All righty. Well, I don't know about you, but I often... uh, I'm intrigued with what's going on in our country when it comes to uh, the, the discussion about church and state. Just this past week, there was a, a school in uh, Texas, and one of their traditions on Friday nights for their high school football game is for the high school football team to run through a banner that has been made by the cheerleaders. And it's a, it is a public high school, but on these banners, they like to put Bible references And I don't know exactly which ones they choose. Maybe they pick from the Psalms, you know, that says, may you dash their babies' heads against the rocks. I mean, that might be a good good football one. Uh, You know, I don't know what the the verses they pick are. But uh, they put Bible verses on these banners. And guess what? It made somebody mad. And somebody decided to uh, take it to court. And fortunately, the cheerleaders won. They can still have... May the baby's heads be dashed. No, I don't think that's the one that they put on there. But uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe that's one, you know, because of Tim Tebow and what he had on his his eye patches at some point. Uh, Who knows what they put on there, but they won. In in Florida, there was a recent uh, issue going on with uh, the Gideons passing out Bibles. And uh, uh, they, in fact didn't allow them in the school to stand and pass out the Bibles physically. They had to just create a table, place a table in the cafeteria, and and nobody could be at the table, and they could just offer the literature on a table for kids to come and grab. And there's actually an atheist group uh, who was there to document exactly what happened and if they followed the rules. And in fact, they broke the rules, those terrible Gideons. They had a couple of people that were manning the table and and passing out the Bibles, which was not allowed, and and also engaging some of the students in in some discussions, which was completely and totally not allowed according to the rules. So that was just in the last week or so. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, if that comes to a lawsuit. You know, this is nothing new. Uh, it's nothing new in our country. You might think it's new in our country, uh, but it's not. And, and, and even if it is new in our country, it's definitely not new around the world. And it's definitely not new since Jesus Christ walked on the face of the earth. In fact, Jesus, our Lord, has said that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I mean, he expected it to happen. He knew it would happen. And so whenever you see these things, don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Because um, if you're shocked or surprised or alarmed, then you don't believe the Bible. The Bible said we will be persecuted just as they persecuted Christ. 
Now, I wanted to show this image on this computer, but I couldn't get it to work. Um, it's an interesting picture of all of the countries in the world that are hostile to Christianity. Uh, some of them are just outright, uh, they, have, they have created laws that prohibit you becoming a Christian. Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, North Korea. And some of them are, are open to the church's presence, but... Uh, official proselytizing, trying to share your faith with other people, or possession of the Bible, or these type of things, is very sketchy and dangerous. And I often like to read uh, from a a group called Voice of the Martyr, and they have a website called persecution.com. And they talk about the persecuted church around the world. And if you think some cheerleaders on a Friday night being, not being able to have some Bible verses for a football team to run through is bad. How about pastors and churches who are imprisoned? And many for years at a time, decades even, without ever coming to a fair or just trial. Or how about churches that are interrupted in their worship in the morning by a suicide bomber? who runs inside and detonates a bomb, killing and maiming and injuring uh, hundreds of people. Uh, We don't have it so bad. And I often wonder, maybe we have it too good. Uh, In fact, I wonder sometimes, is the church in America just not that dangerous? Is that why they don't come after us? You see, when I speak at baccalaureate, which is one of my favorite things to do, although I I get insanely nervous, there's nothing worse than talking to high schoolers who don't want you to talk to them. (laughs) Right, parents? (laughs) And and you kind of have to win them over and you kind of have to work hard. But one of my favorite things about baccalaureate is on the back of the program, they put this disclaimer because I'm dangerous that night. They put this disclaimer that says... The views expressed by tonight's speaker may not necessarily be those held by the, you know, we do not endorse, we do not, we don't like this guy, we're trying to get him out of here. I mean, you know, the school is scared. And it's got to be one of the few times as a pastor I feel a tad bit dangerous walking in there. Because the message we have as the church is dangerous. Have you ever thought about it being a dangerous message? I mean, that's why Jesus warned that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Have you ever noticed as you read Jesus, he's not just this nice guy who hugs lambs and walks around and and just says nice things to all the nice people. In fact, he, at one point during Holy Week, he went into the temple and he was so angry with what he saw that he fashioned a whip and he started to drive people from the temple. (laughs) What if Jesus showed up at church today? What would that be like? Would he drive us from church with a whip? Would he turn over some chairs and have troubles with, I mean, some of you are thinking, yeah, he he needs to show up now, but how would Jesus respond to his church, especially here in America today? Would he think of us as in the same vein as the early church? Would he come and go, I don't know what that... In fact, it reminds me of a story. 
we went down to Mexico many years ago, and we met a pastor, and his name was Ernesto. And uh, Ernesto was a fun little guy from uh, Tijuana. And one day, he showed up in Denver at our house. And uh, we lived in the basement apartment of my grandparents' house at that point. And Ernesto shows up, and... Um, He's just hanging out in, in the U.S. and he got away from his church for a little bit and he was wanting to reconnect with some of us who had gone down and, and spent some time at his church and worshiped with him and done some things down there. And one of my favorite stories about Ernesto being in America was he wanted to go to Taco Bell. <laughs> so Ernesto went to Taco Bell. I didn't get to go with him, unfortunately. I wish I could have been there. And, and he goes to the Taco Bell, and he, I don't know what he ordered, you know, but he made a run for the border. And <laughs> he ate Taco Bell, and we asked him, what did you think about Taco Bell? And he's like, well, it's not Mexican, and it's not American. I don't know what it is, but I like it. Ernesto liked Taco Bell. <coughs> And I wonder sometimes if Jesus were to show up at the church, he would be like, well, it's not the old church that I established. And I don't know what it is. And would he like it? Would he like what he saw in the church today? And would it please him? This question, honestly, more than almost any other, keeps me awake at night. Makes me struggle and wrestle Are we as the church on task, on mission? Are we as the church doing what Jesus started to do? In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8, there's this phrase there that I just love, and I heard it at a mission conference more than 20 years ago. And this scripture just opened my eyes in ways that no scripture ever had. In fact, I'm not even prepared to share it with you, but it just came to me. So let us look real quick so I don't misquote Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In this passage of scripture, we read these words. Nope, that's not it. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Acts uh, 1-1. Sorry, there it is. 1-8's really good too, but 1-1. In my former book, Theophilus, this was a book written by Luke, the doctor, and he did a lot of research for it. In fact, you can read uh, his gospel of Luke and then the, the book of Acts kind of back to back and that's a good way to get some perspective. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus, see that next word? Began to do. Began to do. And at this mission conference, uh, I heard a preacher preach from just that part of the book of Acts. And I gotta tell you, It was profound, even though I missed the reference, okay? It still stuck with me that I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. And it makes you go, oh, he's still doing stuff? I mean, that's how the whole book of Acts is set up, that Jesus is still doing stuff. Now, how? Because the other books, the Gospels, ended with Jesus flying up into heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God. 
How is Jesus going to continue to do stuff? Because he's there, not here. And this guy proceeded to tell us that we are the body of Christ. That we are the ones who will continue the work of Jesus on the earth. And I wonder if Jesus were to return, he would be like, huh, that's not the work I began. That's not what I started. You know, as I wrestle with Scripture and as I wrestle through uh, some of the passages in Scripture and even some of the angst and concerns that I hear and see from folks in this day and age, I still go back and I wonder, are we on mission? Are we on purpose? Are we on task? There's this passage in 1 Peter. And 1 Peter was written by... Feel free to just, there you go, yeah, you're not going to get that one wrong. That is a softball just waiting to be hit. It was written by Peter, and you know Peter from the Gospels, you know, the guy who kept putting his foot in his mouth. The guy who uh, always seemed to, you know, let's do this. He was a bull in a china closet. He was completely not like me. I like to, when I don't know what to do, sit around and think and ponder and read and talk to other people. Peter, when he doesn't know what to do, he's a man of action. I mean, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter didn't know what to do. Do you know how I know he didn't know what to do? Because the Bible tells me Peter didn't know what to do. So Peter decided, hey, let's build some shelters, Jesus. <laughs> why? I mean, we're planning on heading right down the mountain, Peter. I don't know why we would build shelters. Let's build shelters for you and for... And Jesus, like, actually God interrupts the whole conversation. Says, hey, Peter, listen to him. <laughs> okay. And, and, and I, I, I would be up there. I'd be like the other guys that were up there. I'd be like John. We don't know what John did because John wasn't a doer, okay? John was kind of a guy that laid back and sat around. And, and see, John actually lived to a ripe old age. Uh, Peter died early, so that's in my favor too. <laughs> Just for all you bulls in a china closet. But Peter writes this book. And he writes this book, and if you look at how he begins this book, he writes it to God's elect exiles scattered throughout. Exiles. I don't know about you, but I don't often think of myself as an exile. I think of myself as right at home. And Peter writes this book to exiles, and he writes it to exiles because they have been driven from their homes because of the persecution that broke out against the early church. And they left where they were because it wasn't safe. And these are instructions and encouragements that Peter, Pastor Peter, writes to these people. We're going to look at a famous part of this this book. In fact, it's just chock full of great quotes. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we read this to these exiles. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. You know, uh, people often talk about the church being a place to show reverence. Did you ever think of your heart as a place to show reverence? (laughs) It always makes me kind of giggle a little bit when I hear that, uh, you know, when I was a kid, we would just work really hard to dress up and look a certain way at church. And being the young, budding theologian at six years of age, I always wrestled with, well, how come we're getting all dressed up 
He was in the bathroom with me this morning. I'm not going to, you know, change his opinion about me. If God is truly everywhere, and he is, and, and, and if the passage in Matthew 18 that talks about where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, is about church discipline, which it is. And I have yet to see a morning worship service be a doubt about church discipline, although we could make it. You know, God's already here. He was here before any of you, before me, got here. And we show up, and he watched you get up and out of bed, and your hair was all kind of crazy, and you just weren't quite. I got to get all spiffied up for God this morning. Dude, I'm already here. Sorry. And it always made me wonder, why do we get all spiffed up and dressed up so we can go revere God at church when Peter says, revere Christ as Lord in your heart. Revere him as Lord. I mean, that's something you can do 24-7. You don't have to show up here for an hour. You don't even have to get dressed up for that. You can be persecuted, driven from your home. You can be in uncomfortable circumstances, hungry, needy, without shelter, watching your friends and your loved ones being beaten and hurt and, and maimed and even killed, and you can still, without a fancy church building, do this. You can do this by yourself. You can do this with others. You can revere in your heart Christ as Lord. So do you. You see, this statement is why the church is persecuted. This statement, Christ is Lord, is the reason behind it all. If you're trying to figure out why is the church persecuted? Why do people hate us? Why are they so mean to the church? It's because we have a message the world doesn't like. And it is those three simple words, Christ is Lord. I don't know if you've ever watched the show Duck Dynasty. There's rumor that uh, Phil might show up at our church service on Easter Sunday. But anyways, uh, probably be via video. But there is rumor. And, and, and I love watching Duck Dynasty. And fortunately, I'm able to watch it because I have a friend that invites me over and lets me watch it at his house. Because we don't have that kind of cable at our house. But anyways, I love how the show ends. Because Phil prays. The family's gathered at the table And they pray to end the show every time. And I watched a video this past week where Phil had to go to the wall so that they would quit editing out his prayer and how he ended it. Because you see, Phil loves Jesus Christ. And when he would finish his prayer, you know how he would pray? In Jesus' name, amen. And those are fighting words in this world. I mean, you may not be aware of that, but those are fighting words. Because if you say, in God we trust, amen, well, that's on our money. Nobody cares about that. And if you're, you know, a Christian, a nominal Christian, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, you can kind of go, yeah, I'm all right with the God word. I mean, that's not going to bug me much. But when you start praying, in, in a lot of people's opinion, a dead man's name, who you claim is no longer dead but risen because he is Lord. Because when you pray like that, you are making a statement that Jesus is Lord. You are revering Christ as Lord in your prayer. 
You are praying in Jesus' name. I mean, if he's dead, why are you praying in his name? You pray in somebody's name, and that's important because their name has something to do for answering that prayer. They're able to act in the name of Jesus. And so we're told, revere Christ as Lord. The church is supposed to revere Christ as Lord. And once we've done that, Peter has further words for us. Because if we do this, it'll change us. It'll change our lives. It'll change the way we live. It'll change the way we look to other people. Because when you name Jesus as Lord, one thing you're saying is, I'm no longer Lord of my life. This is where um, we have troubles with this Lord thing. I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, Jesus is Lord of, of America. Jesus is Lord of the world. Jesus is Lord of creation. It's another to say, Jesus is Lord of... to say Jesus is Lord of me than it is to live Jesus is Lord of me. Now if we live out that Jesus is Lord and Peter writes the rest of this book and this whole thing to help you understand kind of what that looks like then we will live different and this is what will happen. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You see, one of the things that if we will set a Christ, apart Christ as Lord is we will live different than the rest of this world will. We will create a counterculture for this world. We will spend our time differently. We will spend our money differently. We will live different sexually. We will look weird. We won't watch certain things. We won't let certain things come into our homes. We will have different values. And it will be strange to the prevailing world around us. And if you don't look terribly different than the rest of the world, you got to wonder a little bit, don't you? And we will look different. And then it says in Peter that they will ask us questions. How come you're different? What is up with that? So, good measure for whether or not Christ is Lord is how often do people ask you about the hope you have? I mean, that's one of the implications from this text. If nobody's ever asking you, hey, tell me about this hope you have. Tell me about why you're different. Then it could be argued that if no one asks you those questions, you aren't setting aside revering Christ as Lord in your heart. And if that's the case, you've got to work on that lordship thing. Jesus has to come into your heart and he has to be given lordship, master of your cash, of your stuff, of your emotions, of your sexuality, of your marriage, of your parenting, of your entertainment. Oh, brother. It's one of those legalistic messages. I mean, we heard grace the last several weeks, but now it's all about, man, I've got to do this, that, and the other thing. No. Because 
If you believe the grace thing and the mercy thing and that Jesus did die on the cross for your sins and now you are forgiven and now you are in more important concept that happens, you are set free from the law of sin and death. Why would you return to sin and death when you're free from it? Because those things that we are so attracted to in our sinful nature are sin and death to us. We want them so bad and we're not willing to give it up because it's like, it's mine. Anybody ever watch The Lord of the Rings? That character, Gollum. It wasn't written as an allegory, okay? I mean, that's what J.R.R. Tolkien insisted his entire life. I think he's wrong. I think it was an allegory at some level. And I think that Gollum is us when our hearts are taken captive by sinful desires. And the ring is the power that sin has over us. <coughs> the only way for escape, the only way for escape is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can take that ring away and replace it with something that we crave and desire so much greater and so much more. And that's him. And some of you have experienced this and you know what I'm talking about. If we live that way, we will look different. We will be free people, and there will be a hope, and there will be a joy that the world can't match. As I've read this story about Bonhoeffer, I've shared about it the last few weeks, it just strikes me how amazing this man was in a Nazi prison camp. And you know what happened to him since he set aside Christ as Lord in his heart? People wondered, what's up with this guy? Why does he have hope? I mean, he had hope when others had none. Do people ask you about the hope you have? I pray and hope they do, because if they do, then they see something in you that causes them to inquire. Now, there's also another reason why you not, might not be asked, be asked as to the hope you have, and that is you're just spending all your time with people who have the same hope. That's another possibility. You don't know anybody who's hopeless. I mean, you do, but they shouldn't be, right, because they're <laughs> Christians. I mean, you don't spend any time. You're, you don't rub shoulders you don't brush elbows with other people who are outside of the faith and they have no opportunity because they never see you. They're never close enough to you. And in order to be asked to share the hope you have, you have to be a tad bit transparent. They have to watch you. They have to see how you live your life and they have to be near enough to you that they can go, huh, that's different. I thought it was totally okay to do that. And they have to be near enough to you that they don't feel judged by you so that they can walk up and say, hey, tell me about this thing. I mean, we've got to be honest, authentic Christ followers so that people see something in us and want to be around us. They're attracted to us. They're attracted not to us, but Christ in us. So maybe... No one's asking because you're not near anybody who's far from Christ. You know, if Jesus is Lord of this world, then this is a message we need to share. 
And the reason it needs to be shared is because if he is truly Lord of the world, but the rest of the world doesn't know that and doesn't believe it, then they don't believe what's actually true. It'd be like if the Ray Public Schools, for whatever reason, decided to teach 2 plus 2 equals 5. 2 plus 2 equals 5. And every person in Ray believed 2 plus 2 equals 5. And if every person in Ray, Colorado, believed 2 plus 2 equals 5, and then somebody from outside the community came in and they were to see our math curriculum, because think of the implications of 2 plus 2 equaling 5. I mean, that throws off some other mathematical stuff. And all of a sudden, you've got all this erroneous math happening, and your tax returns have been messed up for years. Mm-hmm. Your church finances are a little screwy. And there's all this crazy stuff going on in Ray. And somebody from the outside comes in, and they're like, why is all this crazy stuff going on? And they find out at the root of it, when you were in kindergarten, in fact, before kindergarten, mom and dad, who graduated from Ray schools, taught you two plus two equals five. And that person were to go, huh, (laughs) that's weird. Because everywhere else, the kids know two plus two equals four. How is it that Ray got this all wrong? We need to teach them. We need to show up and we need to help them see what's true. Because the truth will set them free. Because all of a sudden they won't be going, scratching their head. I keep getting two things and two other things and I keep coming up with a number that's different than five, but I've been told all my life it's five. I'm confused the hair, but I have ignored it because it kind of sort of works in Ray. But when I go elsewhere, it hasn't been working out for me so well. And this person rides in and they tell you the truth. And that's why we have to share about Christ because this world has got it wrong. They don't know who the true Lord is. They don't know who the true master is. They think it's them. They think it's Oprah. They think it's Dr. Phil. They think it's the president. They think it's somebody other than Christ. And it's Jesus who's Lord. And it's only the church that has that message. It's only individuals in that church who share that message. Will you share that message? Will you revere Christ as Lord and then will you live it out and share it? Now I love how Peter goes about setting this up. He doesn't give you four spiritual laws. He doesn't give you, here's a good picture to share with somebody at lunch. Here's a way to, you know, just kind of shoehorn Jesus into every conversation that you have while you're spitting in front of people. I mean, he, he doesn't say that. He says, as you're living your everyday normal life, doing your everyday normal things, brushing and rubbing up to other people, they're going to go, huh, you're different. Tell me about it. You don't have to try to figure out how to you know, weasel Jesus into every situation. You don't have to try to figure out how to even lead them to Jesus and to say a prayer right that moment. It just says, tell them. When they ask you, tell them. Can I tell you that this scripture set me free from guilt that I would feel sometimes? Because somebody would kind of mention God in some kind of sort of weird way. And I would be like, oh, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to fix that for them right now. I got to help them understand that how they see about God and what they just said about the Bible or what they said about Jesus is wrong. And I just need to push them across the goal line today. Come on. 
And then I realized, they didn't ask me. Usually I realize that 10, 15 minutes in the conversation. <laughs> they look at me like... <laughs> right? I mean, you've seen the deer in the headlight evangelism techniques before. You've probably experienced them sometimes. And I realized, oh, if they ask me, well, nobody asked me. Maybe I spend too much time at church with church people. Or maybe I don't revere Jesus as Lord. And then when I started spending less time with church people and more time with non-church people, and as I started revering Christ as Lord in my heart, and I started walking around, and I started hanging out at coffee shops, and I started to just rub elbows with people different than me, with me than me. And by the way, it's so easy to do in Ray, Colorado, compared to Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. When I was on the the board at the movie theater, when I was a soccer coach with my kids, when I would go to functions at the school, when I it's different. Sometimes people ask me. Then Peter says more. But do this with gentleness and respect. Because he knows how dumb we can be. Because he's the chief dummy. (laughs) I mean, remember, we're talking about Peter here. (laughs) No offense, Peter. He's not listening in anyways. He's got other things to do. He was busy sticking his foot in his mouth. He wasn't terribly gentle about it. And he often wasn't very respectful about it. But over time, Jesus changed Peter's heart. And he came to understand that if I just bully people into Christ's kingdom, if I just am mean, if I speak a lot of truth, Jesus is Lord, without much gentleness or respect for other people, they don't listen. That's a key part of this. When people come and ask you about the hope you have, be prepared. Be prepared. And it says, always be prepared. And do it with gentleness and respect. One last thing. Do you see that word always? What do you think that means? Always. If. You're a pastor. Always if you've done your morning devotions. Always if you know the answer. Always if you went to Bible school. Always if you are comfortable and want to. Always if you... No. There's no if and or but. It's always. And this is Pastor Peter writing to regular folk like you me. People who didn't get to spend three years with Jesus. People who don't know all the answers. People that didn't even have the Bible were ones that he wrote that to. You've got more information to share than they did. What's stopping you? Why aren't you? I just don't know enough. I don't know what I'd say. 
Suck it up. Man up. Bow up. Just do it. It says always. These are God's words to you. Men. You gonna? Women. Will you? Always be prepared. Guess what? In a couple weeks, we have Easter coming. And if you will be bold, and you're brushing elbows, and you're rubbing shoulders with people who don't know Christ, will you be bold enough to talk to them? Will you ask them to come to church with you? Bribe them, you know. Buy them a ham or a beer, whichever works. Will you encourage them to come to church with you? And then you're somewhat off the hook for sharing, because that's my job. Until you go home, right? Will you have enough boldness to not invite a Nazarene or you know, a Methodist or, or a Baptist or, or a Presbyterian? Will you have enough boldness to add a non, to, to, to invite a nun? When they check off their religious preference, they have none. When you ask them about Jesus Christ, they say, I don't know what to think of the guy. Will, will you have enough boldness to ask them to come? My guess is there's a lot of no's out there. Why do I know that? Because I'm really good at no myself. <laughs> Will we be a bold, dangerous church? Or will we be a safe, lulled sleep church? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would make us dangerous. Forgive us when if we were to close our doors, nobody in town outside of the folks that gather here would even notice. Forgive us if we are just busy trying to be safe, trying to make ourselves happy, trying to keep ourselves uh, comfortable and happy and content with ourselves. Jesus, help us to make you Lord of our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. And may we be dangerous. May we invite folks who are far from Christ to come and join us on Easter Sunday and hear about what he has done for this world. Help them see that two plus two is not five. That Jesus truly is Lord. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord... Turn his face towards you and give you peace. Because if you enter into his lordship, you will be persecuted. And it'll cost you. And you will need the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. Holy Spirit, make it so. Amen. Amen.